Colossians chapter 1. We're going to complete our study in chapter 1 today with verses 24 to 29. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. The Word of God says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Almighty God, for the privilege of your word to to speak to us, to, to transform us, to reveal yourself to us, and to behold Christ Jesus his sufferings, his sacrifice, his worth, his glory, his power, his majesty, and all his love and his mercy and his grace to us. So, Father, I ask that as we examine these, this testimony from Paul today, that you would not only reveal, Lord, what we are called to, how we are identified But, oh, Father, that it would continue to cause us to reflect and look back upon who Christ is in himself. May we never forget this. May we never stray from this. May we never pursue or seek anything beyond the gospel that you have revealed and passed down from the apostles and the prophets, even unto this day. Lord, bless this time. I magnify and boast in my weakness that Christ alone may be exalted that you may be glorified, Father, in our midst this day, and that we may be equipped for your purposes and for your glory. In Jesus' righteous and holy name, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. I was really grateful to receive the text last Monday night of the opportunity to continue preaching. Not so much that you get to hear me, but for the reason of completing this chapter, because we're going to peer into Paul's life, his identity, if you will, who he is in Christ, what he was called to. And looking at this, it it begged the question, who are we? Where do we gain our identity? Where do we find our identity? Who are we identified with? We have various forms of ID that we carry around with us. 
birth certificates that tell us the character of our birth, location of our birth, driver's license that give us the authority to, to drive a vehicle, passports to travel internationally. We have various forms of, of credit cards from silver, gold, platinum, palladium, blue, even black, that give us the opportunity to buy things with discipline and care. But they also carry with it a status symbol, a sense of power in the world, a sense of who we are monetarily, socially, economically. But none of these things have any weight or power or eternal worth in the kingdom of God. We are fundamentally identified as human beings created in the image of God. We all share this. But what's of greater importance for everyone in this room is whether our identity is found in Christ. Are we of those who have been identified as being with Christ or in Christ? Are we new creatures in Christ? And with this renewed identity in Christ, what is our purpose? And we're going to see today that what was a reality in the life of the Apostle Paul and his identity, in whom he was now identified with, and what was the purpose of his life and ministry is also a reality of the life of any true believer in this day and age. In our new identity as the result of the reconciliation to God through the person of Jesus Christ. And we've been examining as close as we possibly could. It's such a wealth of, of glorious truth in those first 23 verses, but... Fundamentally, it's been Paul's account of the continuous work of the Heavenly Father that that he is ever working in common providence, but chiefly in the redemption accomplished in and through his Son. And it is because of this divine power and the work that Paul begins with with thanksgiving to the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ because of the, the faith, the love, the heavenly hope at work in these dear saints. By the word of truth, the gospel that they heard, the seeds of this work being planted by Epaphras, their fellow slave and servant, who has now joined Paul and Timothy in, in their prayer for these, specifically praying for these saints. And in that transcendent prayer, we studied unceasingly to seek for a filling up with the knowledge of God, of his ways, his will from his word in order that they may walk worthy of the Lord, walking in that intimate communion with Christ, bearing fruit as a branch engrafted into the vine of eternal life, continuously ever increasing in knowledge and grace, in in satisfaction of Christ and in Christ, and, and of glorification to God, being enabled by his power alone. You know, May this be our daily prayer and meditation, brothers and sisters. We are called to consistently remember that it was the Father's will that through his beloved Son, that these saints in Colossae and we are delivered from the dominion and rule of darkness and sin in our lives, 
having been transferred into that glorious eternal kingdom of Christ, our Redeemer. And then as Paul shifts his focus from the Father into the Son, we begin to peer into that truly unique status that Christ alone holds, that that preeminence in creation as creator and sustainer of all aspects of creation. His supremacy over his body, the church, of the reconciled, those exalted in status by his resurrection from the dead, that of his fullness as both fully God and fully man, and through his single final sacrifice, that ability to reconcile, to make peace, as we just just heard, to fully satisfy the Father's wrath, that great substitution of our sin for his righteousness. We then came to to understand that reconciliatory work of Christ alone that carries with it for us the accountability, that responsibility of man, but also included in that is the power from God that enables the believer to continue in that objective faith in Christ to ultimately be presented holy, to be established and steadfast in him, having a confidence in him on the promise of that great reward. This divine power alone is what enables us to persevere in the hope of the gospel of Christ. In essence, we're to fully appropriate all who Christ is and all that he alone has done in our behalf. And so Paul, graciously, thankfully, we praise the Lord that he was called and appointed as a minister of this glorious gospel who uniquely encountered Christ himself. Not in a way to, to draw our eyes and our attention off of Christ but and, and its sufficiency of Christ, but he's clearly in full radiance of who Christ is and his sufficiency. Paul says in these verses, 24 and 25, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. And here is where Paul begins to to expound upon, to bring, if you will, a completeness to living in the gospel reality, which they first heard from Epaphras, and in order to further encourage and edify these saints. Now, not that the gospel message that was given was incomplete. That's not what I'm saying here. That's not what this means. For the gospel they heard that they believed in was the full message of truth. But Paul is expounding upon his new identity. One is identified as a servant, as a minister of Christ in his gospel. What all this involves, what this includes, what comes with this new identity, with this new union in Christ, both for himself as an apostle and what is true for any servant of Christ. So in the hope that we'll all be edified and equipped by this in our lives, I've identified three main headings in this passage for us to examine. First is going to be sharing in his sufferings. Second is going to be the sacred secret revealed. And third 
the subject of divine power. Now, sharing in his sufferings, Paul's present tense use of now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake is not specifically pointing to his imprisonment in Rome, but he's looking at the present time when the lordship of Christ is proclaimed universally in the gospel. He considers it a great privilege to suffer as a servant of this gospel for the Colossians and for us. This, this suffering, this philipsis, is not new or news to Paul. It was revealed to him by Christ from the very outset, and it's been a part of his calling of his entire ministry. Paul considered that the sufferings he endured at this present time, all of the very real hardships he endured for Christ's namesake, which we find in, in 2 Corinthians 11. I'd like for you to turn there with me, if you will. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to look at a few verses there. And Paul is, is defending here his apostleship against those who are boasting of their own worth and attempting to deceive the church in Corinth. And we look at verses 23 to 28. Paul says, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a day and a, a night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen. Dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Yet in all this, Paul also says in Romans 8.18 that these sufferings, all of these sufferings he endured were not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us in Christ Jesus. Paul faced extensive persecution and suffering at every turn through three years of his missionary journeys, proclaiming Christ and him crucified. But he also knew of the source of his joy and the ability to rejoice in the midst of them, not just looking back on them and reflecting on some nice thoughts, but even in the midst of them. Paul lived the reality of what he said again to the Corinthians in in the second letter, chapter 1, verse 5, that these, these sufferings of Christ, though they be ours in reality and abundance, Paul also realized that in the midst of these sufferings, there is also the comfort that is abundant through Christ and and only through him. Paul is sharing something very specific and powerful here for the sake of the Colossians and for us. And we need what we need in order to grow spiritually in our daily lives. And this is the reality that by virtue of Paul's identity now found in Christ, 
his union with Christ and subsequently our own union with the Lord means that we will share in his sufferings. Paul suffered as an apostle, as an appointed messenger, in that authoritative role for the sake of Christ in his reconciling work. He was involved in that unfolding eschatological plan of God, and as an ambassador and a vessel and a voice of the message of the gospel, he was persecuted in his flesh doing his own share of suffering for the sake of Christ's body, his church. Not because Paul was Paul, but because of whom he now proclaimed, of whom he identified with and was united with, and the truth of the way that he held fast. And it's for the same reason now that any child of God, true child of God who lives, who walks worthy of the Lord, in proclamation of and in the example of Christ in, in humility and obedience will also suffer for the name and the sake of Christ. This is who and what we are united to. And this is what Paul spoke proudly about concerning the saints in Thessalonica. Not only of their union in suffering, but of their increased faith and love that resulted in the midst of their suffering. 2 Thessalonians 1.5 says that because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater, therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you'll be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. The early church in Acts, Acts 5.41, they consider it a privilege to suffer. They rejoice to be considered worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. The Philippian church was exhorted and encouraged by Paul in chapter 1, verse 29, where he said to them, To you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And you may be thinking now or asking, how and why is suffering for Christ a cause for our joy? And how does this this even increase our faith and our love for the saints? Well, Scripture does give us five reasons. I know there are more, but I found five that that Christians can find joy in the midst of suffering. And I'll give you these for, for further study and examination. First, suffering will bring us closer to Christ. We see this in Philippians 3.10. In knowing Christ, we'll not only know the fellowship of his sufferings, will know Christ and realize more intimately what Christ went through on our behalf. Our love for him will grow. Second, suffering assures us that we belong to Christ. John 15, 18, the world hated Christ before it hated us. In 2 Timothy 3, 12, Paul warns us that if we desire to live a godly life in Christ, we will be persecuted. 1 Peter 4.4 tells us of our times and suffering. There is 
an awareness of the Spirit's presence upon us. Third, suffering brings the solid promise of a future reward. We looked briefly at Romans 8, 17, and 18 earlier, that if we suffer with him, we will be glorified with him. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, our light afflictions, interesting Paul calls these light afflictions in this life, will result in an indescribable weight of glory. Fourth, our, our suffering can contribute to the salvation of another. Just as in Thessalonica, the evidence of the joy and hope found in the midst of persecution will impact others as an aroma of life to life. Fifth, suffering with joy always frustrates the enemy because we must remember that in all things, remember, pause, all things, all things will work together for our good if we are in Christ. And this ties back directly to item one. Paul then goes on to say something you might find shocking or perplexing in verse 24 where he he talks about filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions or in Christ's sufferings. What could he be talking about here? What possibly could be lacking in Christ's afflictions? And what is he referring to when he says here that suffering for the sake of the Colossians and, and by extension for all believers that he is somehow filling up, or a better rendering of this is that he is to supplement Christ's sufferings. We need to look at this because, as you probably know and have heard, other religions use this verse as a means to to justify some state or place of of purgatory, some intermediate state of after a, a physical death that those who are under the impression that they're going to heaven but where a a recently deceased person's soul must somehow now undergo a means of of purification or temporal punishment to achieve this purification from venial sins, hopefully making them suitable for heaven. But let me be very clear, this is not what Paul or any section of scripture has in mind here. Paul does not mean that Christ's sacrifice was insufficient or that his suffering in the atoning work accomplished and the cruelty of the cross needs to be augmented somehow or supplemented. Not any of this at all. Because we know from the, from the immediate context in the preceding 23 verses, namely verse 20, that we already studied that Christ himself, his sacrifice, his atoning work was and is totally sufficient in every aspect. So what is Paul getting at here? What is he saying? Paul means here that the sufferings endured by the body of Christ, while Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, are not done yet. The sufferings endured by the church on the earth, they've not been completed, even up to our age. And therefore, all believers in this age, too, will participate in those sufferings to various degrees, in various ways, but all for the sake of Christ and his gospel. Another way to look at this, and we saw that Christ is both fully God and fully man, and and in his humanness, he was in the flesh just as we are, and with his fleshly body, he suffered on our behalf during his earthly ministry. 
Now Jesus is seated in glory at the right hand of the Father in his glorified resurrected state and is no longer undergoing the curse of the sin that he bore. His sacrifice in his fleshly body was totally sufficient. However, we as his body, his church still on this earth in the flesh, we are still undergoing affliction, persecution, suffering in this age. And both Paul in his time and the present body of Christians are receiving and will receive persecution that was and is intended for Christ. The world will continue to turn its hatred on those who live for Christ, who preach his truth, who proclaim his gospel. And God the Father in, in his decree, according to Galatians 4.4 4, and in Mark 13.5-27, set a, a definite measure in time and a limit of the tribulations at the end times. It can be seen in this context that there's a, there's a definite measure of suffering that's yet to be filled up and what is often called the messianic woes. There was for Paul and there still remains for us deficiencies in these sufferings that are in the process of being completed within the church until the Lord's glorious return. Christ exalted in glory continues to suffer in his members from the early church, and he spoke about this in Acts 9.4 to Saul of Tarsus, even to our present day. And our sufferings do not add to the treasury of merit, nor do they, they bring about any atonement for our sins. These sufferings are always part of the consequences of sin, which Christ will not remove in this present life on earth, but will remove, be removed, thankfully, at final judgment and glory. Are we participating in these sufferings? I know many of us here are, and many of us will be. But we, must, we need to remember the truths from Scripture about suffering. No suffering, no affliction we endure as a believer for the sake of Christ is ever meaningless. Now, I'm not talking about because of sin and a disciplining work of the Father because of disobedience, that's another sermon. But those who are suffering for the sake of Christ, for his word, for the testimony of the gospel, and living out every day, abiding in Christ, like those who cry out in Revelation 6, 9 to 11, where they say, when the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God, and because of the testimony which they maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. The suffering and death of saints is considered so precious in the sight of the Father. And we must never forget that our affliction and the affliction of others is precious because of the reality that our afflictions are a part of the fellowship 
of the Lord's suffering. We must also be aware and take care to minister in whatever means possible, whatever ways we know of to those who are under affliction and persecution in the midst of it for the sake of Christ. We need to realize that when we see our brothers and sisters in Christ being persecuted for the sake of the gospel and his name, that we're seeing with our own eyes and hearing with our own ears the suffering of the body of Christ, and we we need to be careful not to become apathetic or indifferent. We must continue to pray for, to consider, to minister to anyone who is participating in Christ's afflictions. And we must also prepare for this ourselves. We've been so inundated with so many perverting flavors of the gospel of Christ and what is called Christianity in America that we really need to have our minds not only renewed but guarded from the the pleasure-seeking, wealth-accumulating, the have-it-all-here-and-now filth that deserves God's judicial wrath because it is another gospel. Again, our identity with Christ means that just as Christ warned the disciples that if they treat the master that way, they will treat you the very same way. And so we as disciples must prepare for suffering and affliction in our Christian experience and in our testimony of Christ. We should not be surprised either or outraged at this. Are are we prepared to suffer? Are we genuinely preparing our hearts, our minds for this? It does not cost us much in this country right now to be Christians. But as your pastor, and I believe I can speak on behalf of Pastor Emilio as under-shepherds, it's our responsibility to prepare you to suffer for Christ's sake. None of us know how long it will be before persecution against Christ and all that he stands for will be unleashed on this nation. And it's because we're studying this passage in particular that I want to prepare us for all that what may, may be coming very soon for the purpose so that you and I may give a good account on the day of the Lord. If he's called us, if he's reconciled us, we must seriously prepare to take our stand to witness for the sake of Christ and his gospel because we've been ransomed by his blood of his sacrifice and now being united and identified with him, we must prepare to share in his sufferings. Paul, again, our beloved and faithful steward and minister from God, he fully carried out the preaching of the word, this glorious gospel for our benefit. And this brings us to our second point, this this sacred secret revealed. Verses 26 and 22, we read, 27, excuse me, we read, that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations but has now been manifested to his saints to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of of glory. Paul's mission, his ministry as we know it, is to fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, which he goes on to say is is this mystery, this mystery in these eschatological promises of God, 
that are now being made manifest, that have been made manifest, that the richness and, and the complexity of this term mystery, mysterion, can be seen even in its uses in, in Old Testament apocalyptic traditions where this mystery refers to the plan of God that will find its fulfillment in the future. We see this throughout Daniel chapter 2. And scripture does tell us that there are some things God reveals to no one. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But Paul's use of it here affirms the, the consistency in God the Father's plan that has been carried out in its fullness and timeliness as revealed in the climax of salvific history in the life and death and the surety work of Jesus Christ. But Paul appears to be contrasting two ideas of this mystery in Colossians. This mystery of what had been hidden from the past ages and generations has now been made known and even made known among the Gentiles is one idea to refute the false teachers who are promoting some secret, some mysterious code or knowledge that the Colossians needed to know in order to grow spiritually according to their own concept. But the second idea is what Paul is saying to the believers, that that this mystery is not some secret code, something only for a select few of, of elite people, but actually something no one could have known apart from God's revelation. And Paul defines it very clearly here for us. He says his stewardship is to preach this mystery, this revealed truth to the Gentiles, and it is a truth that only God willed to reveal to make it known. And this is nothing less than Christ himself, in whom all the supremacy and the sufficiency is found. And Paul's ultimate outcome, his purpose in preaching this now revealed mystery of Christ is initially for salvation for unbelievers, but also that Christ would continue to be our ultimate satisfaction, that we would be reconciled in order to grow up in him, that we would be maturing in the knowledge of him, that we would be found complete in him at his his return, and being made holy just as he is holy. So why would Paul or why would any modern-day preacher hold back or try to hide or, worse yet, attempt to provide some other option to that which has been provided and revealed to us in the person, the work of Christ, through the Word of God? That's the work of the enemy. That's the work of wolves in sheep's clothing and for the destructive purposes that it's set to. We must not be tempted to go anywhere else or to anyone else but to God and his revelatory word to find the true mystery of spiritual and eternal life as revealed in Christ. There's nothing to add to the gospel, and Paul reminds us that we are complete in Christ alone, and he alone has given his fullness found in the gospel. And it's all that we need in order to daily walk in Christ. And it's an amazing thought just to consider, in in a sacred way, God's kind of ironic work in using, of all men, Saul of Tarsus, this prominent Jewish man, this Pharisee of Pharisees, to reach and proclaim the gospel to Gentiles. This is really a great cause for us to praise the Lord, because 
to consider God's power and the ability to change hearts, to bring about his will, our ultimate good, and his glory. This is what Paul refers to in the riches of the glory of this mystery through the work of this gospel, that Christ removed all barriers and divisions, uniting us in him through the spirit that both now Jew and Gentile possess these surpassing riches of the indwelling Christ. This is our hope of glory, Christ within us. In this time as fellow Gentiles, to consider that we were not only lost sinners, we were apart from any covenant, had no part in the preaching of the prophets or hearing of the law of Moses. Without the work of Christ, without this mystery being decreed and revealed to the Gentiles, we would have no hope. No other place that we could find any fruition or satisfaction or salvation. Our only right hope is the hope of glory in Christ. And the only way to this hope is through him and being united to him by the work of his spirit. But how do we know that we've truly found this hope? How do we know we're truly united with him? Do you love Christ? Do you know his love implanted within you? Have you experienced this love growing in you and overflowing to him and to others? Does your love for Christ, is is your love for Christ greater than for anything the world has to offer? Thomas Adams, who didn't consider himself a Puritan, he was from the Puritan era, he once said very, very succinctly, let us use the world, but let us enjoy the Lord. Shouldn't we as Christians find our full enjoyment, our full satisfaction in Christ? It seems that the more we are satisfied with Christ, the more we find satisfaction in satisfying him. Say that again. The more that we are satisfied with Christ, the more we find satisfaction in satisfying him. It's not a word play. It's a mark. It's evidence that the Spirit has united you to Christ, and he has brought all the Christ benefits to bear for you. Lastly, we come to our third point, verses 28 and 29, the subject of divine power. Paul says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Paul exemplified this utter satisfaction in Christ. Everywhere he went, he proclaimed him publicly declaring him, preaching his gospel, being so satisfied that he could not only count everything else as a manure pile, but he sang hymns of praise while being incarcerated for his Lord and for his gospel. Paul didn't argue or debate or proclaim for the sake of proving a point, trying to win an argument or showing off his knowledge. His purpose, his target, his objective was always the salvation of souls through the proclamation of truth 
and in refuting heresy because of this truth. As one with apostolic authority, he incorporated with his proclamation to proclamation of the gospel, two aspects or approaches that that demonstrated this purpose and objective of his ministry. Paul was striving to present every man complete in Christ, to bring about the impartation of truth and wisdom of the gospel, so that those who believe may grow to completeness, to perfection, to be mature in Christ. This is the same goal he expressed very clearly in Ephesians chapter 4, where he says that he gave Christ, God gave some as apostle and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And for members of Heritage Grace, you know this is what we discuss in membership class is one of the the foundational purposes of the church being established by Christ and the main reason and benefit we have accountable church membership. We aim to win people to Christ, but also through the equipping that is now both provided for and accomplished through Christ's church is to bring them to a spiritual maturity and ultimately spiritual perfection, which is that final and complete union and glory with Christ. And even though this final spiritual perfection does not occur until glory, this should not deflect us from focusing on this finality which is required of believers as they stand before the throne of God. This is our goal. This is our purpose of preaching and proclaiming him. And it is the goal of the pastors of this body. All of this was not only Paul's purpose, but it consumed him in labor and striving in his struggles for this aim. Paul is keenly aware of God's sovereignty, of the power of the gospel to call and reclaim the Lord's own, of drawing men to Christ, yet knowing this, he continues to strive as an instrument of righteousness of the living God. And his, as his messenger, as a preacher being used for the purposes of drawing many to Christ, Paul longs to be fruitful in this labor, striving to the point of exhaustion, agonizing with, with maximum effort for the sake of men and women and children's souls. Paul's labor and striving was not something he learned to do in some self-help guide or had access to any Tony Robbins videos. His, His strength, his enabling was within his soul and not from any strength of his own, but only from the power of God. Because if it was within his own strength, then nothing he would have even attempted to accomplish would have had any value or worth. And the words of Christ echo in this, that apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul found himself upheld. He was, he was undergirded in all that he did by the strength found only in Christ through that supernatural work of the indwelling Holy Spirit. 
He didn't try to depend on some inner person, some inner strength found in his, his old nature or his mind. It was through the regenerating grace of God. And this is what he professed in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says, But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them. And yet not I, but the grace of God within me. God gave Paul all the grace and life necessary to work hard at his ministry. To strive just as he does for all the call for the faithful in this day and age. And it's only by faith in the Son of God and the grace that he alone bestows that any of us, any of us could hope or truly live while in this body of flesh. And through a humble, faithful, conscious dependence upon and even resting in the grace of God in Christ was Paul able to do the work to fulfill the ministry that he was called to do. This is what enabled him to fight the good fight, to finish the course, and to keep the faith. And this spiritual relationship and this vital experience with Christ is not exclusively for apostles. No, it's it's for all who are in Christ. There are no longer any apostles being sent out, but as we are blood-bought, reconciled children of God, we too are called to labor and strive for the souls of others in our proclamation of the gospel and in everything we do, fully relying on the power and the grace of God to enable and to keep us through our temporary sojourn here toward, looking toward, looking forward to, anticipating and eagerly awaiting that glorious day and the perfection that we'll receive in Christ. Amen.